Psalm 51 starts off for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Those are verses 1 to 3 in the Hebrew, and it is well worth our time looking at the historical background, because this comes back also in Psalm 32. And the historical background is found in Second Samuel in chapter 11 and 12. And so if you'll turn there for a second. It was customary for kings to lead. Great. It is customary for kings to lead the armies, and David had done so on a number of occasions. But on this occasion, when it happened in springtime, the king did not go out to battle. It is then that David sends Joab, his general, and his servants, and all Israel to destroy the sons of Ammon and to besiege Rabbah, that's the capital. But David stayed in Jerusalem. There wasn't a command for the king to go out, but there was certainly an expectation for the king to go out. And when evening came, David arose from his bed and he walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so David inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when he came to him, sorry, when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned home. You are familiar with the story that goes beyond this. Uh, the next stage is that David commits terrible crimes. But I just want to pause here for a second because this is significant language that is being expressed here. Uh, what happens? He happens to see a woman bathing. Well, in many commentaries, she is condemned. She's the femme fatale. Luther even says she's the seductress. And she is condemned. I'm not sure that's actually in the text at all. I don't know if he was ever there. But what she is doing is she is purifying herself. And that is a far more significant word that is actually in our text uh, it's found in Leviticus 15, where after her period she would have had a ritual cleansing. And that's what we see. That's the word here that we have, rachat. And so she's purifying herself. She is not doing anything wrong in this sense, because the men are away. It's springtime, out to war. I wonder if Luther was ever in Jerusalem and not having read his biography that carefully, I'm not sure he did. But the city of David, the, not the old city that we often speak about, but the actual city where David lived was divided up into one small hill below the Temple Mount. You can see the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, on the top there, and what we see underneath is the city of David. And what do we see there? Well, in the middle is David's palace, and so if her house was higher than his house in the hill and the men are away, she could have easily just had a, a ritual cleansing and got away with it. 
But in many commentaries, she is condemned in very terrible terms. But when I read through these verses that we have here, what do I see? I see David looking. And when he saw there was no sin in that, it just happens to be something that he saw. But then he lusted after her. He lusted after his neighbor's wife. And this is something that God forbid, prohibited in the law of Moses. Not just once, but three times. Exodus 20 verse 17 is just one of them. He then commits adultery with her. Forbidden in Exodus 20.14. We know from the rest of the story that he then calls Uriah back. And he makes her husband drunk. Well, that's not explicitly prohibited in the law of Moses, but it's certainly condemned uh, looking back at Genesis 9 or Genesis 19. Genesis 9 is Noah when he got drunk and there was sexual immorality that followed uh, in Genesis 19 with the story of Lot and his daughters. And so uh, the book of Proverbs three times condemns being drunk. So clearly not a great thing. Then he had Uriah pulled back to cover up his crime. And so he covers up the crime and that's lying and that's something that is condemned. Then he had him killed. And this too is condemned in scripture, Exodus twenty thirteen. And then again, he covers up that crime by marrying her. It's easy to condemn her in this story, but it's not so easy to find that in the text. I think David would have been well to remember God's words spoken through Job. I have made a covenant with my eyes and I will not think about the young woman, meaning I will control my lust. But David saw her and David inquired, who is she? Who is this beautiful woman? And the answer that came back was, she's the daughter of Eliam. Uh, in uh, Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 3, Bathsheba she is called. And Eliam is, it is the people of my God, and he's called Amiel. It's the same people, 1 Chronicles 3, verse 5. In both cases, uh, Ahithophel is his father. And these are people that come back in the story of David later on. But David hears whose wife she is, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He looks at the woman and goes, she's beautiful. Hmm, I think I can get away with this. Uriah the Hittite, probably not his real or his original name, because Uriah means light of Yahweh, light of the Lord. And so he was a convert who had risen up in the ranks and had become one of the 50 great mighty man of David. He had not only left his own people and his own faith, he had left everything behind. And so he is standing there fighting the battle while David is looking after his wife. He had made a huge sacrifice. And so when David, verse 4 in Second Samuel, David sends messengers and took her. And when she came, 
And when she had purified, the word end here is actually more in the Hebrew. It's a connective word. This is a chronological sequence we're reading now. I want to look at this word here. He took her. The word there is a rather unusual word. It's the word lakach. And it it means to seize. Not he took her in in a normal sense of that he just embraced her. But there is a force behind this. It's the same word that we see in Genesis 34-2 with the rape of Dinah. When Shechem took Dinah, it is that same word. It is not the same word that is normally used for a husband and wife, which is later on within our text. Uh, In chapter 11, verse 27, he just sleeps with her. It is not this word. It's an unusual phrase here. But here in our text, it says that David inquired. David sent messengers. And then suddenly she came to him. In the Septuagint, the oldest translation that we have, the Greek version, it actually says that he went into her and he lay with her. As it is in Josephus, in Antiquities, chapter, in Book 7, Chapter 7, Paragraph 1, indicating that this text is probably more that he did rather than what she did. And yet because of this little phrase, suddenly she is condemned. Yet I suspect that's not the case. Because what had happened before? She was on the roof purifying herself. And what is her response after she has slept with him at the end of verse 4? She can purifies herself. In other words, she was remained, sorry, she had remained faithful in all of these things. This was not a pleasurable thing she did. It was just a ritual purity. And so when we read Psalm 51, I want you to see how many times he says, I, me, mine, my, versus we, or she. You will not find that at all. It is only about me, my, I. He is condemning himself and he's acknowledging his sins. David, upon receiving the news that she is the daughter, sorry, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the daughter of Eliam, the granddaughter of Ahithophel, should have stepped back. And yet he committed adultery with her. And from that moment on, he slips down. And he weaves a web of deceit. I can get away with this. Her husband isn't here. All the men are gone. And he calls Uriah back from the front line. And Uriah says, no, I will not go home. I will stay here. I will report what happened and then go back. Because the Ark of the Covenant and Joab, my Lord, and the men of Israel are there. After two nights, David realizes the game is up. And so what does he do? He sends a letter with Uriah to Joab and put him in the fiercest part of the battle and redraw so that he might die. Essentially, he murders Uriah. Joab obeys, and Uriah dies in battle as David had planned, verses 16 and 17. And then 
In verses 26 to 27, Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband. We like David. David is a man after God's heart. He's, he's the great psalmist. We love him. But let's see what God says about this. But what did God say? But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. In Second Samuel, it's the repeat of the word take, lakach. Uh, you have taken the wife. And there is a condemnation now here by Nathan the prophet who had come. David had gotten away with it for nine months almost. And what David had done was evil. He had lusted after his neighbor's wife. Then he had taken her, possibly by some force. He had tried to cover it up, then then ordered the murder, and then covered that up. It's interesting that this word lakach is also found in Deuteronomy 21, where if Israel had conquered another nation, they could take their wives and their daughters. David sees her as a trophy, perhaps. David is not a young man. He's an old man at this point. He has in middle age, I should say, not an old man. And he's unwilling to let go of his lust. As James writes, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when it's finished, it brings forth death. And this is exactly what happened here at this point. It brings forth death. David is at this point allowing his lust to come forward. David really acts like the unrepented criminal rather than the sweet singer of Israel. It isn't until he's confronted by Nathan the prophet who tells him that story. The rich man had many flocks, Second Samuel 12. And there was this poor man who had only one little lamb. And what does David say? That man should die. And he should restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and he has shown no pity. Then Nathan confronts him and says, you are that man. It is only at that point that David repents. It's an amazing thing that God did not kill him at that point because he declared that man should die. But God says, no, the child will die. The child that you have conceived with Bathsheba. David said he should repay fourfold. And that's interesting because four of David's sons died untimely deaths. The firstborn with Bathsheba in Second Samuel twelve fifteen. Then there was Amnon who died by the hand of Absalom. In 2 Samuel 13, verses 23 to 33. And then Absalom was killed by Joab in 2 Samuel 18. And then finally Adonijah, who attempted to usurp the throne of David, not just once, but twice, once during the life of David, 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And then he tried it again in the next chapter. But when David had died, he then does it under Solomon. And Solomon says, off with his head. 
And so four sons, fourfold, David lost his sons in untimely deaths. And this is the judgment that David had pronounced upon himself. David's guilt came now to haunt him. And so Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. So that you have justi- so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make known wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I shall teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifice, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Did you notice how many times he said, she made me do it? Did you notice that he blamed anybody else but himself? You see the same in Psalm 32, which is a related psalm, which talks about the same time as this, where he says this, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you. Lord, you forgave my iniquity, sorry, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David requests from God something unique. Three times he requests for mercy. There are three different words uh, translated differently depending on the version you're reading. Gracious, mercy, uh, chanan, chesed, and compassion, rachamim, uh, mercies. These are all words that relate to God as he called for himself in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, where he says, I am gracious, I'm a loving God, I I will be slow to anger. And it is based on those names there that David appeals to God. He doesn't appeal for justice. 
but for mercy. And so this is his appeal to God. And then he describes himself also in a trinity of words, in trinity of sin. All those words like chatat, uh, to sin, literally to miss the mark, uh, pesha, to rebel, to transgress, to go beyond what God has required and our own iniquity or guilt. David simply is saying, Lord, I need to appeal to your mercy because of the iniquity, the multitudes of my sins. Transgressions are acts of rebellion, defying God, crossing over that line that he had set. And David had crossed over that line consistently. Iniquity. David had shown the iniquity, the crookedness, and the perversion of his heart. And he says, Lord, I've missed the mark the general word for sin, but he, when he shot with his arrow, and that's where the word comes from, he hit something else. It wasn't that he was following the path of God. He was hitting all the wrong things. David fell very quickly in Second Samuel 11. And so, too, we need to be gracious to one another when we fall so that we may pull one another out. For all of us have sinned against the Holy God and have failed to keep his standard. In Psalm 32, David relates how he paid that price. It was physical. My bones wasted away. And here he's talking about a spiritual separation from God. And therefore, he needed to be washed like she had been, and he needed to be cleansed, as she had done. And he's leaning on that same passage in Leviticus 13 to 16, where he desires that cleansing that she had so carefully observed. David saw his heart was defiled and asked for God to wash him thoroughly, literally with a great many washings. Why? Because against you alone have I sinned. Was he saying he hadn't sinned against Bathsheba? No. But ultimately all sin will hurt God more than all the people together. He was saying that all of his sins ultimately ended up with rebellion and crookedness and perversity that lead on. And God is the judge. In verse 4, he clearly acknowledges, I have done evil in your sight, and you are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. He's being honest, and he's saying, I can't get away from this. I have defiled, I am a sinner, I am lost, and now I need to stand before you, and I need to become pure, and how can I do this? In verse 5, he understands that he is born a sinner. It's not that he's necessarily born through an act of sin, but he's saying, from the time that I was born, I was a sinner. It's not my defense, Lord, because I sinned, I committed these offenses to you. And in verse 6, he says, Lord, I know that you desire truth, and therefore what I've said was wrong. 
You've made me a prophet, and I should have understood. But what you wanted was an honest confession. And so, Lord, purge me with hyssop. This is something, too, that comes out of Leviticus 14, where it talks about the cleansing of the person with leprosy. Cleanse me with hyssop, because I am like a leper. And then I shall be whiter than snow. Language that comes back again in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let us discuss your sins, and you shall be whiter than snow, if you acknowledge them like David did. In verse 8, make me hear joy and gladness. In the past nine months, that's what he had been missing, the fellowship of God that had been so great to him. Again, he uses a trinity of words here, sason, simcha, and and the the root word for gil, to rejoice. He consistently brings these kind of trinity words up or, or triune words up, saying, Lord, hear me, because I am missing my joy, my gladness, my rejoicing. And the bones that you have crushed, Lord, belong to me. Hide not your face. I love this phrase because this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 17 to 18, where God says, if Israel sins, I will hide my face. In the Hebrew, that literally says, I will be hiding hiding my face or surely hiding my face in many translations. David is now saying, Lord, that is me. I am the sinner. But Lord, to be restored to you, hide your face from my sin rather than from me, as the curse was in Deuteronomy 21. Blot out my sins. He's referring to a written document where you can rub out the text. Lord, rub out my sins. Back then, they had two options. You either wrote on parchment or on stone, or you wrote on wax tablets. And he's saying, in a wax tablet, Lord, make my sin. And create in me a new heart. I love that. The word bara that is used here for create is something that only God can do. Only God can create in me a clean heart. The heart is... Not the seed of emotions as it is for us today. It is the heart of thinking in biblical Hebrew. And so what is he really saying? It's the same what Paul is saying in Romans 12 verse 2. A renewal, a transforming of the mind. And a spirit that is steadfast, that is willing to follow after you. O Lord, cast me not away like a broken vessel. For that is what I am. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. And this is really strong language. Remember what happened before with David and Saul? Saul was there and God removed his spirit from Saul. And an evil spirit visited Saul. And David is saying, Lord, don't make me like Saul. Preserve my life. When God sent that evil spirit on Saul, 1 Samuel 16 verse 14 In the King James, it says it troubled him. The the Hebrew is far stronger uh, to terrify or to be fear, like absolutely fearful. 
And that's what we see here. Tormented would be a good word. And so David is praying, Lord, don't make me like that. David knew the Spirit of God in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 2. It actually says that David presented oracles from God. He was the man who had the Spirit of God and it spoke through him. David is saying, Lord, have mercy, and then I will teach sinners your ways. Uh, I love that. I have to be honest. I, I really do. Sorry, verse 12. Let me just come back to that for a second. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uh, David is praying for the physical salvation, for the physical rescue. That's what it in the Old Testament is. We often transpose this to Christian thought, uh, spiritual salvation, but that's not inside. And sustain within me a clean spirit or a willing spirit. Uh, the, the word here is honorable spirit. Lord, this is something that you need to sustain within me, that I may become honorable in all I do. And then I will teach transgressors, sinners, your ways. And sinners will be converted. The word here that is used is from the word shuv, meaning to repent, to return. Converted is a too stronger word here. He's saying, I will teach them. And I will teach them about conversion. Why? Because I am a sinner. And you've cleansed me. And so, Lord, I can come to them and declare what you have done in my life. And this is like David giving his testimony. It's an awesome thing for us to share testimonies, because it's often a good witness. But if we share testimony of how bad we were, we're really missing the mark. The point of the testimony is what God has done in your life, and that's what David is doing here. And he's saying, deliver me from blood guiltiness. It was me who killed Uriah, Second Samuel eleven fourteen to 27. O Lord, and this is Adonai, O Lord, open my lips. Lord, break my mouth open so that I may declare your praise because I cannot do it. I am broken. I've kept my mouth shut for these nine months because I knew I was living in guilt and in sin. But Lord, if you forgive me, open my mouth that I may declare your praises. For you do not delight in sacrifice. You do not delight in self-righteous works. That's really what he's saying. Otherwise, I would give it. But even good religious works will not bring atonement, will not bring salvation, will not bring anything. For you are not pleased when I bring burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. It is at this point that he realizes that the only way to come to God would be in repentance and a contrite heart. Because then you will not despise. He finishes in verse 19 with, Then you will delight in righteous sacrifice, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. He's not saying, 
It is not right to bring them. No, he's saying it is right to bring them, but when I have the wrong attitude, it is useless. Good works, good religious works, the best religious works with the wrong heart is a waste of time, and we should not do it. And it's the same for him as it is for us today. David understood that Forgiveness is what it's all about and not just bringing a sacrifice. In verse 18, he then says, By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. It seems almost odd to many commentaries. Why, why is that in there suddenly? But David is the king and he's gone to God's Place, to God's dwelling place. Second Chronicles 6, 6, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. There are other verses that speak about this. It is God who chose Jerusalem. And so he is saying, this is your city, Lord. This is what I have come to dwell in. And Lord, have mercy upon your city that you may be there and that I may bring those righteous sacrifices and bring whole burnt offerings. The phrase here in that last verse is twice burnt offerings, but in the second word is the word Khalil. It means in its entirety, I will bring whatever I can. Lord, this is what my heart's desire is. When we looked at this psalm, we see that he acknowledges his sin and he pleads for mercy. And he asks for God to bring his cleansing to him and to restore him to fellowship and to remember God's place on earth so that he may then bring the right sacrifice. Friends, isn't that the same for us today? We need to acknowledge our sins and plead for mercy before God. And we need to ask for a restoration of fellowship, not through bringing what we can bring, but through what he has brought. And what he has brought is that sacrifice that is mentioned in Isaiah 53, that righteous sacrifice to Lord Jesus. It is at that point that he will cleanse us from our sins that we may rejoice in God our Savior.